Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview successful entrepreneurs and bring you tips on business and personal growth. This week we have Andy Mackinson, who is the co-founder and chief marketing officer of Human Healthy Vending. He also used to be my boss and I interned for him as an internet marketer. Andy, how are we doing today? I am doing phenomenal, Eric. How are you today? I'm doing great. So, Andy, you know, you've done some phenomenal stuff with the business. I mean, you guys have gone from zero million to how many million are you guys at today? Point one million. No, I'm just kidding. We, <laughs> um, we, we've gone from, uh, from zero to 10 million in about three years. Cool. And can you give the audience a little uh, insight as to, you know, what, what human does exactly? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, a snapshot of today. Human Healthy Vending is a franchisor of healthy vending machine businesses and healthy micro-market businesses. We operate under, under the franchise model. We have uh, approaching 2,000 machines and markets out there in the, in the, uh, out there in the U.S., um, a lot in schools, hospitals, gyms, health clubs and uh, some YMCA's. So that's kind of where we have our, our machines. We're, we're launching into the new micro market category which is basically a uh, it's a mini convenience store for your office with 100 percent healthy food and it's got a self checkout kiosk so it's all unmanned automated retail and uh, the, the big market there is for offices. So we're, we're launching into that. Got it. Cool. So, you know, I, I think the first question, you know, a lot of people in our, in our audience are, you know, they're more on like the software side. They're, they're asking probably, you know, why, why would you want to launch like a, like a vending machine business when, first of all, it's probably pretty competitive and it's, it, you know, the costs are so high to get started. Why a healthy vending company? Yeah. Well, I like to tell people we, uh, we got into the vending industry because it's just, it's one of the sexiest industries you could be in out there. Uh, that would be a joke, obviously. But, well, that's um, why I joined first, you know. It, it, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, it, it really comes down to not really w why did we get into vending. I mean, vending itself is, is just a channel. Um, you know, there are five million vending machines across the U.S., which uh, based on the U.S. population is about one vending machine for every 70 people. So it's a, it's a ubiquitous channel through which we can distribute products. So for us, it was how do we get healthy products into the hands of people as conveniently as possible? And, and vending is a very great channel to, to deliver that. Um, but to answer the question, why did I decide to get into healthy vending? Well, it's, it's one of those things, the, the paths that life take you on. Uh, back in 2007, I was helping a friend bring a hot food vending machine to market. It's a machine with a patented microwave assembly. It's inside of the machine. So basically, from the consumer standpoint, you push the button. Uh, the product inside the machine falls into the microwave inside the machine. It cooks the product, and then you end up with uh, you know, a hot uh, sandwich or you know, a meal item that comes out of the machine about 30 to 60 seconds later. And I, um, at the time, I had zero experience in the vending industry. I thought it was a very um, interesting and, and novel product. Um, in order to help him get that, that machine out into the market, I had to do a, a lot of research on the industry to really understand what the industry was all about and to, to see the opportunities. Um, what I realized in, in researching that and, and figuring out how to bring this product to market was that the vending industry itself is a very, first of all, it's been around for a very long time. It's, uh, it's been, uh, been around for over a century, one of the oldest industries out there, very well established. Also realized that it was very slow to evolve, uh, very, very slow to adopt new technologies. You know, you've got the, 
the kind of the standard mom and pop vending business that has been around for decades doing the same thing. Uh, this the standard brown or black uh, vending machine uh, delivering products via coils. Uh, not much innovation there. Uh, and I realized that there are some some pretty big opportunities um, th- that that the industry was not harnessing. And and some of those opportunities, such as credit card readers, um, offering basically uh, the offering the consumer another option to to buy. Uh, you know, you've got cash. Uh, coin and now with credit cards that raises the average uh, revenue at the machine because let's face it a lot of people don't have uh, you know cash in, in their wallet as much anymore they use credit card more so I saw credit card readers I saw remote monitoring as a very big opportunity remote monitoring is the, the ability for the owner of that machine to log in from home look on their computer screen see what products have sold through that machine and then run their route more efficiently so in the past, vending operators, they go and they, uh, they drive a big truck around with a lot of food. They pull up to the location. They go to the machine, run an inventory on what was sold. They run back to the truck. They grab all the food items, put it in a bin, and then they run back into the location and stock the machine. And what remote, remote monitoring allows us to do is to get all that intelligence from home know exactly what was sold the, the day before, go and stock that from your home, put it into a bin, and drive directly to the location, walk right in, and stock the machine. So it's a much more efficient way to, to run a route. You save on fuel, you save trips. Sometimes you, you get the intelligence from the, the remote, remote monitoring that you're about to stock out on a, on a lot of items, and you need to go there sooner than you had otherwise planned. So it actually helps you increase your revenue because with those stockouts, you would have lost revenue. Uh, so you know, credit cards, remote monitoring. I saw you know I started researching the the energy consumption on vending machines. Um, you know, energy uh, vending traditional vending machines are, are big energy hogs. You've got fluorescent lighting <clears throat> that is a uh, in some cases uses up to forty percent of the vending machine's energy. Well, why not have LED lighting where there's uh, relatively low energy consumption, no heat in it at all, uh, and and uh, I'm actually getting a lot of, ah, there we go, uh, a lot better now. Um, so so with, uh, with LED lighting, it's a, it's a big, uh, big way to reduce energy consumption, reduce the heat generated inside of a cooled compartment. And then, of course, looking at 5 million vending machines across the U.S., why, I asked myself, why were there not more uh, like digital signage solutions to attract the customer to the machine, make the machine look brighter, more high tech, um, educate the consumer at the point of sale. You know, having an educated consumer is is important for sales, and uh, it creates a stickier customer too. So, kind of giving the background of this is what was going on in 2007, and I'm seeing all these opportunities. Why aren't vending machines using all of these available and ubiquitous technologies? Well, right around that time, I uh, I met Sean Kelly, my future business partner, and he had been operating healthy vending machines for the last few years and he, he owned and operated those machines and he was experimenting with all the different combinations of healthy products and machines. Do I mix healthy with unhealthy? Do I make the machine look differently? And so when we met up and I talked about some of the opportunities that I saw, he saw the same opportunities and it just made sense for us to come together as business partners and say, let's create vending 2.0. Let's create a machine built from the ground up specifically catered to healthy vending, which at the time it did not exist uh, in the industry. And, and let's create a machine that has all these technologies that offers 100% healthy products to help uh, thwart the uh, obesity epidemic. 
Um, there's a there's a, a a big push for convenience these days. People are outside of their homes more today than they were just a decade ago. They need convenient access to foods. Let's make them healthy and let's make a a really badass machine uh, vending 2.0 to serve those products. And and that was the genesis of of human. The the other key thing for us was to have a social mission as well. Uh, we we donate ten percent of our corporate proceeds to fight the causes of childhood obesity. And we also needed to have a name that really encompassed a movement. And, and that's where we came up with HUMAN, which stands for Helping Unite Mankind and Nutrition. And if you notice, the word vending is not in that name, and it's, it's not in that name on purpose because we see human as, uh, as a way to fix the broken, healthy food distribution system in the U.S. And vending is a very important channel for us right now, and it will continue to be. But we're also expanding into other channels. I mentioned micro markets earlier. We're talking about uh, expanding into. We're not talking about. We are expanding into home delivery uh, with snacks for you know. You think of the busy mom that needs healthy snacks for their uh, for their kids, um, and so creating a an overall nutritional product distribution platform of which vending is one channel. Got it. And cool. The feedback just turned off right now. Yes, yeah, so it's perfect. Good. We're good. Um, so. I'm hearing a bit of an echo, by the way, or no, it's gone now. But um, so first things first, it sounds like, you know, you're in an industry that's ripe for disruption. And, you know, it sounds like the, the, main, the main thing is you need to take advantage when you can. Does, does it sound like that's like something you guys did? Like, hey, it's like no one's disrupting this. This is a really old industry and I'm just going to jump in and do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all about disruption. Um, it's uh, the vending industry is a very fragmented industry. Uh, the as I mentioned, five million vending machines. The largest vending company in the U.S. operates somewhere in the realm of two hundred thousand vending machines. So it's a very small percentage of the overall market share. Right. Vending is a very geographically uh, focused business, and it's very fragmented. And so it's an opportunity to come in with a uh, basically build a better mousetrap, ha have a way to run more efficient routes. And also present a product that that the that the consumer wants and that the market needs. And back in '07, when we were first coming up with the with the concept, it just didn't exist in the industry. And and frankly, a, a lot of the traditional vending operators had tried so-called healthy vending. The problem was is they were switching out. You know, they get a they get a they get a request from their location. Hey, we want healthier products. And the vending operator says, okay. Let me let me remove a skew of Snickers. Let me remove a skew of Reese's and maybe a, a soda skew. And let me put in a healthier option. Well, the reality is when when a consumer walks up to a vending machine that looks the same, they've been they, we've all been trained since day one. And when we see a vending machine, a brown or black inanimate vending machine across the way, we know what's going to be in there. And so when you walk up to it and you see forty unhealthy products next to three healthy products, well, you're still going to go buy the, the unhealthy products. And so we said, listen, you got to do it completely different, totally remove the unhealthy products, get it 100% healthy, make the machine look different, make it bright, friendly, make the consumer, the consumer experience with that machine more fun and interactive. And that's what, that's what sets our, our concept apart from traditional vending operators putting in a few healthy products in their machines. Yeah, and you guys have all these different technologies, and I want to kind of go into that part where um, you know, like you and I kind of discuss, you know, um, neither you or Sean are like super technical, but some somehow you guys t figured out how to get all these new technologies into these machines. So, can you tell us a little bit about the struggles, um, any struggles that you kind of face in in you know getting these technologies kind of integrated? Yeah, 
Yeah, and, and you know, my uh, I've got a business background. Um, Sean's got Sean's a, a biomedical engineer background, but what kind of what kind the, the kind of the common thread among us is that we're we're kind of scrappy, and and the key thing to overcome technological challenges uh, is to find the right partners. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs think that you, you you've got to do it all on your own. Mm. Um, you've got to figure it out all on your own. And and one of the key things that we learned. Um, is that if you if you find other smart people and other smart companies, you, you bring on the right partners, and now you can kind of plug and play the elements that you need into your business model. And so, you know, we we outsource uh, some of our our technological implementation. Um, you know, we use a, a a third party company for our credit card readers. We use a third party company for our remote monitoring. The uh, the digital signage um, is installed by by our contract manufacturer, not by us. So, what one of the the key things that we did when we were building this model was, who do we need to team up with as the right partners across the board to plug and play and get everything that we need into one box? Got it. Okay. So, do you guys have like a CTO or any like technical people in house right now? We have a a, a, a CTO that kind of moonlights with us. Very talented, bright individual. Uh, again, finding the right partners, um, but he's not in-house per se. He's remote. Okay. Can you kind of walk our audience through like how you kind of find this technical co-founder? Because in the Valley, everyone's like, oh, how do I get a technical co-founder? So I think this is a great way to give the audience some insight. Yeah, well, uh, my uh, my business partner, Sean Kelly, had a uh, an e-commerce company before healthy vending. And so they had to build a lot of their stuff from scratch, a lot of their, their ordering and uh, fulfillment portal and all that, the pipeline of how they, they fulfill products and they had to build some stuff from scratch and he had met uh, randomly a guy that was a talented programmer. They started doing some small projects together and, and realized that it made sense to work full time together and so I actually entered into my business relationship with Sean with him already having that relationship set up. So I don't know if I have a great answer for you on how you find a technical CTO, mm -hmm. uh, except that um, our mantra here is when you when you want to work with someone at a high level, let's let's do a, a project or two to kick it off and see how the working relationship is, and then build it from there if it makes sense. Got it. Okay, cool. And I think this kind of segues perfectly into your hiring process. Like, what is your criteria for hiring stars? Because everyone wants stars. Yeah. Well, uh, we have a very um, we have a very detailed and intense hiring pipeline. I treat, I treat the, the hiring process very much like a sales process, very much like a sales pipeline. We outline what are steps one through ten of we want the candidate to move through these steps and let's define what each step is and then move them through very much like a funnel, like a, like a sales team. And so uh, first off, we, um, you have to have a very well-written ad. Um, it's, it's amazing to me when I look on Craigslist and LinkedIn and uh, Monster, Career Builder, these places, the, the, the company ads that are out there, for the most part, are incredibly boring. Uh, they have no flavor to them. Uh, a lot of them are really short. Um, we believe, we're, we're direct response marketers here, and so we believe in long copy. Uh, especially for an ad uh, for for a uh, a potential hire, and so we've got a basically a long form sales letter uh, for our for our job ads, and we use a similar format for every role that we use. There's a lot of stuff that we keep consistent with talking about who we are in our company, and then we change some verbiage up on the specific 
needs for that particular role. But the first step in our funnel, our hiring funnel, is a well-written ad, and that's that would be my biggest piece of advice for for any company. I mean, make make it exciting. Make the make the candidate on the other end of that computer just absolutely want to jump through the screen of that computer, wanting to to come on board because your company is so awesome. Um, so that's step one. Step two is. Um, really uh, filtering through, you know, I, I hear a lot of HR directors saying, "Oh, I've got all these resumes to look through." Uh, well, for us, we don't. On step one, we require a cover letter and a resume, and we don't even on step one we don't even look at the resume. Um, mm-hmm. I look to see that there's a cover letter, and probably shouldn't admit this to the public, but I don't even read the cover letter on step one. I I glance at the cover letter to see that there's some semblance of formed paragraphs and that they halfway know how to write. That's literally step one because you're going to filter out mm, probably 60 or 70 percent of the people just on that first step. Step two is say, hey, congratulations, you made it, you, you made it to round two. Um, now you have to submit a video. And that's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's submit a video of yourself, answer, answer the following five questions. Um, and and then oh by the way uh, to to make sure that that you know how to do things technically on a computer uh, create a Google Docs spreadsheet put this phrase in this cell make the phrase green bold it so there's basically ten different instructions in this in this round two email to make sure that the candidate can follow instructions and create a video no oh, by the way you gotta you gotta upload the video to YouTube so there's some tests there to make sure that you you're computer savvy. Once I get those responses from round two, um, it, now the fun begins because now I've got a much smaller subset of candidates that are serious and I get to watch videos and I get to say, okay, I, I like the vibe of this person. I like what they're saying. If that happens, if I do like them on the video, then I'm going to go and look at their cover letter. I'm going to read through their entire cover letter. And the last thing that I look at is their resume. Um, so I kind of do things in reverse there. Um, and then finally, if they pass that round, it's a video Skype screening. That's step three. Um, it is a 10 to 15 minute screening. It's not an interview. It's me assessing a little bit more of, of the quality of the candidate. And then finally, the candidates that pass the video screening, I'm then calling in for an in-person interview. So, so if you look at that funnel, I'm starting with probably 100 candidates at the top. And by the time I'm doing face-to-face interviews, I'm doing two to three face-to-face interviews. So I've really cut down my time. Uh, in the hiring in the hiring process to get that done, and that's been our our key to success with our hiring, um, and it really it really delivers the best quality candidates out of the, out of the overall batch. Yeah, and I remember going through that process, and it was really rigorous, but it's probably the best one I've been through, just because it's so detailed and it really figures out whether people can do things or not. Like you said, um, a lot of companies they'll, they'll be like, hey, you know, write an essay or whatever, but that's really not enough. Like I think the way you've done it, and this is. This is probably like one of the big biggest key takeaways. This is really how you hire people. You create a marketing funnel for it or some kind of funnel. But I think that's really great advice. Um, next thing I want to jump over to, um, you know, a lot of founders are or entrepreneurs are unsure of like how much they should pay themselves, how much money they should have in the bank, or what percentage of money they should keep in the bank. What's your take on that? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, it's a great question. Um, it depends on what stage of the business you're in. Um, Big picture, if, if you as the entrepreneur are not paying yourself a market wage, um, then, then your, your model's upside down. Uh, ba- basically, if you, look at your, if you look at your net income at the end of the quarter, 
uh, and you're not paying yourself a market wage, you need to subtract that out of your net income to actually get the real net income that, you, that you're making. Mm -hmm. um, so, so let me back up. I, I, I talked about it depends on what stage of the business you're in. I mean, personally, for us to get up and running, Sean and I took it took us 18 months really to get our product to market and first start getting revenues. Um, we had a lot of complex um, uh, partnerships that we had to pull together. Um, we, we had a, a model that we had to create, and and so we didn't pay ourselves obviously during those first 18 months because we had no revenue. And so mm -hmm. so as a as a uh, startup entrepreneur, you do have to expect that you're going to have to put in some sweat equity, and it, it really helps to have some savings on the side mm -hmm. to make that easier. Uh, I, I personally, I went into debt on credit card to continue that process. It took a lot longer to uh, to get our product to market than I first uh, first thought. The old uh, the old entrepreneurial optimism at play there. Uh, <laughs> but but once we started getting consistent revenue, that's when my business partner and I decided, hey, all right, let's start paying ourselves very modest wage. We're not we're not looking to uh, to make six figures here right out of the gate, but a modest wage. Um, so that we could actually look at our our financials and 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 when we have a net income number, we can feel confident that that's that's an accurate number. And this investors are going to look at the same thing: Are you paying yourself a market wage? So as we progress and as as the revenues continue and as we grew, we just started inching up our pay very very um, uh, just very conservatively. Mm -hmm. So and how about money in the bank? And and money in the bank. Um, as the business scales, you've got you've got some bigger variations on month. You've got a, a big cash flow month. It depends on what business you're in too. Um, you know, we're in franchise sales, so our sales can sometimes be lumpy. Uh, we're, we're building more recurring revenues on the back end to kind of get a more flattened line, an increasing line, but get some of those recurring revenues so we always have money coming in. But as far as when you're first starting out and you're just trying to get those sales, it can be lumpy. And so as you scale, you can have some bigger variations month to month on cash flow. So you need to assess what are those variations that I'm having on cash flow. And you need to have enough money in the bank to cover. I mean, it's really helpful to have six months of runway. Uh, if you were to say, hey, if sales stop today, would we be able to run our company for six months from now? And if not, you need to start looking into lines of credit and, and potential investors so that you can get that comfort level. Um, but but I don't have a I don't have a set answer on how much money you need to keep in the bank. Um, but it, there needs to be enough to withstand some of those those cash flow variations from month to month. Good. I think that's good takeaway there. Six months of runway. Um, it might I guess it might it might vary per industry, but I think that's a good number to start with. Um, you talked about you know investors and things like that. Are you guys? I mean, when you guys started out, were you guys bootstrapped? Uh, did you guys take some financing from anywhere? We're uh, we're a hundred percent bootstrapped. Uh, used our own personal uh, funds and sweat equity to to get it going. That's why I, I mentioned uh, going going into personal oh, debt yeah. to, uh, to to get this going. Um, there's no stronger thing than having your back against the wall with no other option, with yourself in debt, trying to get your business going. So, uh, but but no, we we're a hundred percent funded uh, to to this day. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that we we wouldn't be open to um, raising some capital here soon. Got it. Okay, cool. And I guess the next topic I wanted to move over to was, um, you know, as marketers, we always talk about there's masterminds and things like that. Can you explain to the audience what a mastermind is and why people should try to join masterminds? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I think every entrepreneur, I, I, I don't think I know every entrepreneur needs to read the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. 
for those of you who are not familiar with with Think and Grow Rich, uh, the, Napoleon Hill was Andrew Carnegie's right hand man for a number of years. Um, Andrew Carnegie said, "Hey, Napoleon, um, I want to figure out the the equation of success. I want to know what what makes a person successful. What are the main elements? If we boiled it all down." What are the main elements you need to have in order to be successful? And Napoleon, I am going to commission you for the next 20 years to interview successful people across all industries from, from uh, business to government to church to politics, everything, everybody in the top of their game. And I will set up those intro- introductions to, for you to interview. Do you want to do this? And, uh, and, and I guess the, 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 the kind of the lore goes that uh, uh, Andrew Carnegie had a stopwatch going, and he, he, was, he gave Napoleon Hill, I think it was 60 or 90 seconds, to give him an answer. And if he wasn't going to give him an answer within that time, then the deal was off. But Napoleon didn't know that. Uh, regardless, uh, Napoleon Hill said, yes, I'll do it within, I can't remember what the time was, but it was a very short amount of time. And that was the key test for, uh, for Napoleon was that uh, you know entrepreneurs, you need to make decisions. You can't be wishy-washy. So Napoleon signed on said, yes, I'll interview all these people. Long story short, he ends up over uh, well over two decades of interviewing thousands of top leaders and successful people. He boiled it down to the laws of success. One of those laws uh, is the power of the mastermind. Um, And a mastermind is bringing together a group of like-minded people, whether it's entrepreneurs or if you're in industry, doesn't matter. It's like-minded people that are there to help each other achieve a common goal. Um, and so there's a very powerful concept with the mastermind where you have a group of people all putting their brain power to a, a person's specific issue where there's no agenda, there's no, it's, uh, there's no um, monetary arrangement where, you know, hey, you pay me or I pay you based on the information you give. It's just everyone there with no agenda trying to help each other out. And there's a, there, there's a, a very amazing power that comes out of that group, um, and I've been a member of Masterminds, geez, for the last five years since I when, when I discovered the concept, and it's been a very uh, important thing for my development as an entrepreneur, for the development of my business, and bringing like-minded people together so that we can uh, we can figure out problems. And it's amazing the ideas that come out of it. Um, something that you know, for example, you you come to the the group, the Mastermind group with an idea. That you you know you're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars to get going, and, and by the end of that thirty minute discussion, you realize that your mindset was totally off. The idea is horrible, and you would have wasted a hundred thousand dollars and potentially a couple of years of your life uh, pursuing. Um, that's what comes out of the mastermind. But then they come up with a different idea. It says, no, you need to tweak it this way. Spend a hundred thousand dollars this way. That's the real opportunity because you know one guy in the group says, hey, I've already done it. Um, I can give you the blueprint on how to go from from A to Z on that, and so you can fast track your success. And that's the key with a mastermind. You you, you don't know what's going to come out of it, but there's a lot of good that comes out of it. Got it. And how does someone go about finding a mastermind to join? Good question. Well, there are uh, there are paid masterminds um, that if you're if you're plugged into the internet marketing community, there's. There seems to be a, a pretty big abundance of masterminds that you can join with some of the top people, uh, the the Evan Pagans, the Frank Kearns, the uh, you know Yannick Silver's got a, a Maverick 1000. You've got Joe Polish's 25K group. So there are definitely some some really high level masterminds. Dan Kennedy's got a great mastermind that I'm a member of right now. Uh, so you can you can go that route. 
Um, the other, so so it's a bu basically researching, and you know you should already be on some of these these influencers lists. That's the other thing you gotta you gotta keep in touch and 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 uh, be on the mailing list, the emailing list of these top individuals. Um, but the other route, um, besides paying to be a part of a mastermind, which there are a lot of benefits to pay to be in a mastermind because you take it more seriously. But the other route is to uh, is to form your own um, to go and reach out to people. Um, and and say, hey, I'm forming a mastermind, and here's what it's going to look like, and these are the types of people that are going to be there. So forming it on your own, and then the other the other way is um, is go into an unpaid mastermind. Maybe someone else is organizing the mastermind. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I I believe that you should be in two masterminds. One where you're more junior, and most of the people in the mastermind are senior to you. Uh, you can look up to people and get mentorship. Um, and then the other mastermind is the one where you're one of the most senior people, the, one of the most successful or experienced, and, and you're helping mentor the other junior people in that mastermind. And you get a really good dynamic of looking up and looking down um, to help grow. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Really helpful information again. Um, it almost sounds like it's kind of like an internal like board of directors almost. Exactly. It is. It's exactly that. Cool. So um, I kind of want to dive back into the kind of the beginnings for um, healthy vending or kind of how do you guys sell? Um, so obviously, you know, big companies, they have a ton of vending machines already and you know they're very slow moving. The last thing they care about is probably like a vending machine, right? So how do you convince them that they need to buy like a vending machine? How does your sales team do it? Yeah. Well, first off, we don't convince the, the location to buy any of our machines. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the key thing. Um, we operate under a franchise model. Uh, we also operate under a corporate-owned model, so there's two different paths there. Um, focusing on the franchise model, our franchisees are the ones that own the machines. So uh -huh. our, our key deal, so there's, there's really two sales pipelines that we have. One is we need to attract franchisees um, into, a, into our program. Um, you know, like-minded people that really believe in, in health and wellness, that are passionate about helping their community. Uh, also, it's a business, so they need to be money motivated. Um, so that's one of our sales pipelines. The other one is how do we attract locations? And so the location sales pipeline is, is completely different because we're, we're talking with principals of schools, we're talking with gym owners, we're talking with HR directors at offices. Mm -hmm. And so the messaging to the location pipeline is is more of here's the benefit that we provide to you it is a free machine we don't charge you for the machine um, in some scenarios we pay commissions to the location so they can get a a percentage of whatever the gross sales are but but ultimately it comes down to us giving the location convenient access to healthy foods um, for offices it's it's their employees benefiting greatly from that um, there's productivity enhancements there's morale boosting um, there's less absenteeism. There's a whole slew of benefits that that our program provides to to offices. Uh, on the flip side, on with schools, it's us providing convenient access to healthy items for kids and for students. And there are a lot of benefits for students to be eating uh, healthily throughout the day, as opposed to snacking on really high sugary items and junk food. Right. Uh, so, so the the messaging for our location pipeline is 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 much different than for our franchisees. Cool. Yeah, and this goes directly into like the the sales portion of the I guess the questions I have on that side. So obviously you guys have to have a pretty robust sales team. So how do you kind of motivate them? Like how do you how do you pay your sales team because every team's like different? Yeah. Well, there's two ma two main ways that I see. Uh, there's probably a lot more, but the two big ones are first of all, you can't motivate 
anyone. Uh, my belief is you hire motivated people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not my job to motivate someone. It's the it's the quality of individual that we bring on the team that is already self motivated. So that's the, that's a key di- differentiation point. Um, but beyond that, once you've got a motivated individual, it, it is about especially for sales is constructing the the right comp plan where you do have a a high you know a compensate a, a commission element. So based on their performance, based on their results, they get a very vari- the the variable component of their pay is a large percentage of their pay. So the better they do, the more they get paid. And that's, you know, a good salesperson needs to be money motivated and, and the comp plan needs to reward them for for their results. Yep, perfect. I mean, I totally agree with that. So what percentage would you say is, um, you know, commission-based, what percentage is salary? Just so our audience mm-hmm. has an idea. Yeah, uh, sure. And, and, you know, we have different sales roles here at, at the company. And so... We've got some roles that are 100% commission, uh, no base salary at all. Um, and if you look at, well, you know, so, so let me just back up. So we, we oftentimes give an option to people. Um, we say, here's option one. It is a base, uh, small base salary, you know, probably um, 20 to 30% of the overall comp. And then the rest is commission, okay? And then the other option is no base pay at all, 100% commission. And if you look at the two, the two plans side by side at the same level of, of uh, results, you're going to make more on the 100% commission side than you are accepting a base. And that's kind of economics 101. If you accept the base, you're, you're taking on less risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're taking on less risk, you don't get as much reward. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always encourage people to to go full full commission. You'll make more uh, if you're confident in your sales abilities. That being said, we also understand that there are some uh, some younger folks that we bring on that uh, maybe don't have some money saved up in the bank. They're really high quality. They've got a lot of potential, and they're going to take um, you know some of the base salary the, the base salary option mm-hmm. to uh, to help them through. And then we give the option that you can switch over to full commission in you know three months four months whatever whatever we stipulate but um that gives them the opportunity to um prove themselves and perform and then switch over yeah i like that you give people that option because not a lot of i mean for a lot of sales team it's either commission only or like it's mostly like base but the fact that you give them the option to kind of switch over and they can kind of like see the light once they have that money saved up means a lot to them because like you said a lot of young people that have that money saved up so really good tips there and I might have to ask you for those materials too. Um, <laughs> sure. Cool. Um, so wrapping up here, I have a few more questions. Um, how do you? I mean, as an entrepreneur, I always ask people, you know, how do you stay productive? What are some hacks that you use? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was joking around with you. Um, as soon as I wake up, I check my email. Uh, then I go turn on the local news to see what's going on. Um, and then I just kind of hang out and drink a cup of coffee and think. No. Um, Super productive. Yeah, no, I mean the pr- productivity hacks for me. Um, you know, there's this, there's this cool. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll just run through. So, um, I just had a kid. So my my product ha- my productivity hack is I wake up when he wakes up because he's crying. So that's that's my alarm clock now. Um, and I actually hang out now. I hang out with my son in the morning for uh, thirty to sixty minutes, and you know, feed him his bottle and all that. And that's that's a cool change for me. Uh, as I've kind of progressed in life, um, but uh, the, the key thing is for me is planning, um, and, and you have to plan time to plan if that makes sense. So every uh, every week at the end on Friday, in fact, we do this company wide now. 
there is a uh, there's a half an hour block that everyone has on their calendar on a Friday afternoon to plan the next week. For me, it takes about an hour, so I've got an hour block. Um, but it is putting together based on what our quarterly goals are, deconstructing those quarterly goals and saying, what do I need to do next week? What are my main crucial results that need to happen next week? So breaking down those quarterly goals into smaller bite-sized chunks. And we have a, a, a Google Docs. It's not a, a complex. We don't have this big goal-setting like app and use all these resources. It's literally a Google Docs, mm -hmm. very simple. And you have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on the Google Docs, and you've got your main crucial result for that day. And so the, the, what we do on Fridays here is you, you identify what are the five crucial results, one each day, that you need to accomplish the next week. And, and that's the key is, is knowing what you're going to do for that day. Um, you know, one of the, one of the productivity um, uh, tips that, that I, I believe um, you know, Andrew Carnegie had or Napoleon Hill was write down the night before the night before, write down the top three things that you need to accomplish, even if it's on a, with a pencil and a pad of paper, because when you go to sleep, your brain, whether you know it or not, is uh, your unconscious brain is working on the results, uh, working on the solution for uh, to, to get those things done. Um, so, so you asked me what my productivity hacks are. It's well planning ahead and knowing what when I wake up, my day is already scripted. Mm -hmm. It is already planned out, blocked on my calendar. Um, do I get a hundred percent of the things done? Often not, um, but but at least I've got that plan in place um, to get it done. And and you know the other key thing is 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 don't check your email right in the morning. If you've got your calendar blocked off, when you wake up, you know what you got to do. Block off time to process email, and I recommend you don't do it before 11 a.m. You know, get that time maybe during lunch or something, and then maybe once at the end of the day. But block off time to process email. The rest of the time, your email inbox is away from you. Um, you're only in it to if it is you're only in your email inbox if it relates to one of the items on your calendar that you have to get done and you've got to go outbound but you're not processing inbound emails so that would be my biggest advice is, is stay off email until later in the day and, and plan time to plan totally agree with that and for you entrepreneurs that have your push notifications uh, <laughs> oh, all that, the time. that's the other thing I see yeah. people with uh, they've got their gmail push notifications and their phone is buzzing every time an email comes in get rid of that turn that off turn yeah. off your Facebook notifications turn off all that stuff in fact when you're working in your when you've got your calendar blocked off during the day and you're working on your tasks you've got your you've got your cell phone ringer on off and you've got your cell phone face down mm -hmm. on your desk with no buzzes and no push notifications mm -hmm. get that get that out of there yep that's the everybody shut up I'm working time yeah. exactly <laughs> exactly cool so um, favorite book that you'd recommend to entrepreneurs well, I already recommended, um, you know, Think and Think Grow, Grow Rich, which is, which is an absolute must. Um, you know, another one that, that I just read that's 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 awesome is Time Warrior huh. by, by Steve Chandler, and it's broken up into very small, like two-page chapters. I think there's just over a hundred chapters in the book, um, but they're bite-sized nuggets of stuff, and it is about slashing your uh, your thoughts and perceptions of, of time management and uh, actually getting more stuff done it's a I'd highly recommend that book it's called time warrior it sounds like a game man it's 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 a uh, it does and it's and it's enter <laughs> it's entertaining too so cool great yeah. um, final piece of advice um, you know final piece of advice to entrepreneurs that they can kind of take action on in the next 24 hours yeah well I've got two main pieces of advice that if I could Go back and, and do it again. I, most of the stuff I would I would keep the same because 
you know, entrepreneurship is a learning process. Um, and when you fail, that's when you learn. So, so you know, you got to fail fast. Uh, fail as fast as you can so that you learn, so that you can continue to, to succeed. But uh, the two things that I would recommend um, is, number one, map out your sales process. And number two, have tracking and metrics and reporting. Mm -hmm. I guess that's three things in one, but tracking, metrics, reporting, mm -hmm. kind of bundled together. That would be my, my second piece of advice. So on the first piece with mapping out your process, you got to look at, for all entrepreneurs, what is the product that you're selling? What is the service that you're selling? And what, is, what are the steps that my, my prospect has to go through, steps one through whatever, in order to get that sale? And you need to have those stages identified. When is it that my prospect, so you know, just a quick example um, in our process, when a prospect hits our website, they have to opt in. That's step one, you've got to opt in. Step two is we've got to we've got to do an initial reach out call uh, to them to pre-qualify them. Um, step three is get an appointment scheduled with them. Step four is the prospect has to show up to that appointment. Mm -hmm. um, step step five is we then need to get them to the second interview. We have a kind of a we have a sixty day sales cycle with our franchise. It's a hundred thousand uh, dollar opportunity, and so it is a longer sales process. But the key thing there is have the, that each stage defined, and then. When I talk about the the second thing that I recommend with metrics tracking reporting, know what your conversion rate is at each of those steps. So it's this big funnel, and you've got a hundred people here, and then eighty people make it to here, and then sixty people make it to here, and um, and and know what those conversion rates are because you can see once you're once you have those metrics around those those sales stages, those those uh, in Salesforce speak it would be opportunity stages. Um, you can then see glaring holes. You've got a massive hole in your bucket here at this stage. All right, well, what's going on here? It drops from, you know, I've got an 80% conversion rate and, and, and only like 10% of the people are getting through to the next step. All right, well, what's going on at that stage? What's being said? What's being done? What is the customer experience at that stage? And you can, and you can laser focus on that one element and improve it and fix it. And then once you do that, then you then then the funnel starts flowing more again, and then you see where, where the next hole is, and you just systematically plug. And then guess what? When you get to the bottom, there's probably some stuff that you can do back at the top again to to further improve. And you know, just use the eighty twenty rule as you go down through your funnel. So track your uh, know what your sales stages are, and have metrics and reporting uh, around those sales stages. That's if we had done that earlier, geez, I, I kick myself. We, we, we'd be a lot farther along. So. Got it. Cool. So Andy, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I'm sure our audience will definitely appreciate this. That's definitely a fresh, uh, fresh breath of air. So uh, yeah. thanks so much again. Sure, absolutely. And if you want to check us out, it's www.healthyvending.com. Healthyvending.com, guys. Yeah. Thanks. Bye.